Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and around the world on Arut Sheva Israel National News Slash Radio. Want to thank our sponsor, the S4 Group, S4, a full service government relations, communications, and lobbying firm with office in important places. And if you need to interact with the government, S4 is the place to go. Sign up for our weekly informative email. Scroll down s4grp.com. And yes, another, well, another wild week it's been. And, you know, as we come to New York, the election is coming home, home for me at least. But for many of you out there, you know, with the ties of the roots to New York, it's quite interesting. And we talked about this last week. We have primaries on both sides of the aisle, and they are competitive. Now, not competitive in the sense that there's any doubt right now as to who's the win, the Republican Actually, I'd say that right now there's no doubt as to who's going to win on either side. I would say that right now it would seem to me that Bernie Sanders is not going to win, although that would be a huge upset if he did. Huge. Uh, And it would really be a huge blow to Clinton, although it might not imperil her chances to get the Democratic nomination because she still is so far ahead with the delegates and the pledged delegates. Even if Bernie were to win, it would only be by a small amount. He would only top her a few percentage points, proportional representation or proportional delegate allocation, I think is the more appropriate word. That proportional would maybe he net less than 10 delegates. We really would not make any dent in the 200-plus pledged delegate category that Hillary has on Bernie. But on the Republican side, it seems pretty obvious that Donald Trump is going to carry New York State. The question is, how much will he carry it by? He is hoping, of course, to carry New York State and take all 95 delegates. In order to do that, as we explained, he wins the state, he gets 14, and then three delegates for each of the 27 congressional districts that New York has. You know, when I was growing up, New York had 36, I believe, 36 congressional districts. Now we're down to 27. It really shows that the population has shifted out of the country. And because, well, you know, a little commentary here, you know, because of New York's very, very high tax and very, very high regulation environment, uh, particularly as it affects the upstate regions, the uh, well, we haven't lost overall population. But we certainly haven't grown in relation to other uh, states. And New York was... And, you know, recently is 20 years ago, the number two state in the nation. Now that belongs to Texas. Then they were number three. Now that belongs to Florida. New York's still populous, still important, but not quite as populous with the congressional delegation. Anyway, three delegates per, per congressional district at stake. And if Trump gets over the 50% threshold in any of those, he gets all three. If not, he gets two if he wins. And the other guy gets one. Now, what's important here in a lot of places, we talk, you know, we've discussed this, is well, the two factors in each congressional district. And you know, I don't want to go through each of New York's 27 congressional districts, but it's instructive to think about it, you know, one by one, because there's really 27 mini races going on, 27 individual races that the candidate needs to win. And if you're, we talked about Ted Cruz being very strategic 
last week because with going to South Bronx, he's going to Brooklyn, he's going to these places that have low numbers of enrolled Republicans, and you think that you could swing maybe 500, 1,000 Republicans, do some intensive outreach, you could walk away possibly with winning the congressional district. More likely, although very possibly likely, you can get two delegates or one delegate and you soften or you blunt the Trump onslaught. But you, you take, well, you know, now, nowadays you take Long Island. You know, lots of Republicans, more than 300,000 Republicans in Nassau County. Actually, I think 330,000, although it's not quite as much as it used to be, and probably about 310,000, I believe, in Suffolk County. Uh, lots of Republicans out there for the taking uh, and for the voting, and split up into different congressional districts. Suffolk has two, or I'm sorry, parts of three congressional districts, and Nassau also has parts of three congressional districts districts. So it's really, uh, when, you, when you think about it, that would be prime Trump territory, but can he get 50% given the fact that there are, well, Trump had a rally, 15,000 people showed up. It was a huge spectacle, a huge event. You know that people are rallying behind Trump. The GOP leaders in both Nassau and Suffolk are on the Trump bandwagon, but can he get 50%? A lot of the polling that I've seen shows Trump right below 50% with Kasich in number two, in the number two position. In New York City, it's hard to tell because some of these places have not been polled individually and the numbers are so low, it's so hard to find a good sample of Republicans, except in Staten Island, the 11th Congressional District, which is represented by Congressman Dan Donovan. And in that play, in that Congressional District, Trump would, has a, seems to have a significant lead, as well as upstate. But, you know, again, it's district by district. Can individual districts be picked off in certain places? You know, there are districts that are where the congressional representative is a Republican. They have not endorsed Trump. Uh, Elise Stefanik is one example of those, even though she's come under heavy pressure from Carl Palladino, who is kind of the was kind of the uh, precedent to Trump in a lot of ways. You saw in his candidacy running for governor back uh, at this point, six years ago, uh, against Andrew Cuomo was, was kind of a, a, a preamble to the Trump, you know, the angry, the angry attitude that the country is not doing for you and we need to fight back, we need to be angry. Uh, that was Carl Palladino. He lost the landslide, so he didn't have the, quite the same magic that Donald Trump did, although we're not yet at the general election. Uh, Carl Palladino did take out in that primary Rick Lazio, the establishment candidate, and he took him out quite handily and used, really, really, um, I would say, just beating him badly across New York, across upstate New York, in a lot of places that are very depressed, offering a message that, you know, we're angry, we're not going to take it anymore. And we've kind of gotten that from Trump, and that's, you know, he probably looked at Palladino, Palladino looked at him and said, we're kindred spirits here. So Palladino has been beating the Trump drum for quite some time around the state and has been pushing uh, many people to support Trump, but there are districts and there are areas that Trump might not get that 50% threshold. Then the question is, is it Kasich or is it Cruz? And, you know, I'm looking at it. One thing I want to kind of overanalyze for a second and take a second here 
talk about the differences, you know, John Kasich would seem to be the right candidate for a lot of New York Republicans. Forget about, I'm just saying for a second, let's forget about, you know, those that are kind of, well, you know, drawn to Trump. It's a different phenomenon from my perspective. I'm talking about, let's say, conservatives. You know, John Kasich could be an appealable conservative. He has the general election message that he's pulling well, that he can do it. He's a governor. That's been a lot of Northeastern Republicans are, you know, feel that they want some of the competence with experience. And John Kasich would seem to be that type of candidate. At the same time, there is something, at least that I detect, well, at least that I see from that campaign, it just doesn't seem to be as successful as it should be in attracting in attracting a message, in coming in really creating a movement, creating a cause, and inspiring the followers in the way that Ted Cruz does. Ted Cruz, you just feel that that campaign, and we could go we'll go into, you know, in a couple of minutes, some examples where Ted Cruz has really just uh, out-organized, out-hustled everybody. You know, Donald Trump is crying about it. We'll get to that in a second. But what is it about about John Kasich that just doesn't seem to be running a first-class campaign? I was thinking, you know, I had made these comments over time with regard to Marco Rubio that he always seemed to be playing content with second place. And being content with second place in an election is never good. You know, you, well, you certainly can't play for second. You can't play for second place in a primary. You can't play for second place in the general. If you come in second, you've lost in most cases. Now, the well, I know the strategy really was to go ahead and let other people peter out. But eventually, if you're always coming in second, you're not going to win. And Kasich, of course, can't win. But he's looking to have enough delegates to be respectable, and respectable gets him to the convention, and therefore at the convention he can play if he has a seat at the table. But he doesn't seem to capture the media narrative. There doesn't seem to be a cause associated with Kasich. It's really like, I'm not Trump, I'm not Cruz. And is that a message that's going to take him along to the promised land to get him the nomination? Is it really just going to say, people are going to say, oh, okay, he's not either of those guys. I don't like those guys. Let me go with John Kasich. Uh, yes, winnable, but really, doesn't he need to have some some kind of wave, some kind of momentum that gets him there? And he just doesn't seem to have it. Even in New York, in a lot of districts, I'd say my district, you know, in Long Island, suburban, highly educated, you would think that Kasich would be doing a little bit better. He gets about, right now, about a quarter of Republicans that are supporting him. And you just don't get the feeling that he is out there. He's not coming. He hasn't, you know, well, yes, I'm sorry. He came to Hofstra University. He's coming back to Long Island. He is trying to make a play for that. But in a way, you know, what is the cause? When you think of John Kasich, what do you think about? Now, if those that are insiders, those that are junkies, they say, okay, you know, he's done a great job in Ohio as a governor. He's got a successful track record. But if you're not familiar so much with that successful track record, what is it that you associate with John Kasich? And I also get the feeling that the campaign itself is not up to, up to snuff. I mean, so many people made the comment. So many people told me there was so much chatter about the idea that, okay, John Kasich's going to a matzo bakery this week, right? So he's going to a matzo bakery. Wait, didn't Ted Cruz just do that last week? Wasn't it kind of, you know, goofy and awkward at, at times? 
why is John Kasich going to my, and then he went, is going to go to one matzo bakery. He canceled that. I'm not going to the matzo bakery. Uh, I'm not sure exactly because maybe he realized that there weren't enough Republicans in Williamsburg. Maybe it was the wrong, you know, he went to one Sotmer. He was going to, uh, anger the other Sotmer. So he decided to go to ballpark. He wasn't going to the matzo bakery. He decided he's going to go to a different place. It's like, let's just go ahead, you know, let's just, I hear there's some Jews in Brooklyn, let me go visit them, and maybe I could take some pictures with Hasidic Jews, and he had some very interesting banter with uh, with some of the locals, as well as his host, uh, Ezra Friedlander, and who is, you know, uh, a great tour guide of Borough Park and its environs, if you want to go there. Uh, of course, you can't vote for Kasich, which, uh, which makes that you know, that in and of itself interesting. But we'll leave that, you know, aside as far as the the whole idea of going. It just seemed to be a little bit of an aimless trip because, you know, he probably said, okay, well, Cruz did this, so let me do this. And, you know, let's just walk around and talk about, you know, he also represent, uh, sorry, referenced uh, uh, Jesus when talking to some of the locals. I'm sure it was the first time they ever heard somebody really... Uh, talking about uh jesus in on 13th avenue but did you get the feeling that he just wanted to go there because ted cruz did it you know okay he did it so i gotta do it but you gotta look beyond a little bit okay ted cruz i don't know the matzo bakery was fun the matzo bakery was interesting he did it with kids it got a lot of press but there was a big crowd outside people crowded there there was a buzz going on but what was it that ted cruz really did from my point of view, that was really smart about his visit last week. He did interviews. If you look at the front cover of Ami Magazine this week, Ted Cruz is on the cover. There's also exclusive interviews with other news outlets that are other Jewish news outlets. Ted Cruz will be part of the Shabbos reading of many an Orthodox Jew throughout the country, but in New York. And they're going to be thinking, okay, Ted Cruz, okay, well, maybe I like Trump, but I'm going to read about Cruz. I'm not reading about Trump. And remember, a lot of the Orthodox Jews in a lot of places are shielded from the regular media. Yeah, they get it online, they might be, but they're not looking at it all the time. They're not, certainly not watching, many of them are not watching CNN and MSNBC and Bloomberg News and Fox News on a consistent basis. So they're getting their news in many cases from these Jewish media outlets such as Ami Magazine and Mishpacha and Hamudia, um, Five Towns Jewish Times, some of these other places, Vasis Nias. So this is where their outlets are and Ted Cruz is on them. Ted Cruz is getting earned media in many of these places. To me, that was actually what Ted Cruz, when I saw these covers, said, oh, that must have been what Ted Cruz was doing when he went there. He went ahead and I found out that he ranged what you know, were exclusive interviews with a number of these outlets when he was there. There just seems to be a methodical method to everything that Cruz does. And that takes me a segue for what's going on in throughout the country with Ted Cruz and his delegate march. John Kasich is not doing this. He just doesn't seem to have the ground game in many of these places to go ahead. Now, maybe he's not conservative enough for Republicans in Nebraska and Colorado, in Louisiana, South Carolina, but Ted Cruz has is out-organizing and out-hustling even Donald Trump, so much so, of course, that Donald Trump is complaining about it left and right to anybody who will listen. You know, he's now complaining about the rules. He's got a great Twitter fight 
with RNC chairman Reince Priebus on this. You know, Priebus says, well, the rules have been the rules. They've been this way for, you know, and if you want a copy of the rules, I'm happy to give it to them. It is a little bit shocking when you think about it that Donald Trump doesn't seem to be able to put together the corporate organization to go ahead and contest these errors or to, it's just like, take the playbook, hire some people and go ahead and execute, right? Isn't that the simple way of getting things done in business, you know? And, you know, he did it on The Apprentice. This was the type of, this was the types of organizations that, or the tests when I've watched the show the couple times that I did, that people had to do was solve these problems, create a business in order to do that. Why is he not doing that with his campaign? Yes, Paul Manafort is now there as well. Uh, They picked up... uh, Sorry, Scott Walker's uh, former uh, uh, campaign manager, Rick Wiley. So interestingly enough, uh, Corey Lewandowski is now not going to be prosecuted in Florida. So perhaps he's going to be back, but who knows what the campaign structure is like. Paul Manafort already announced that he was reporting to Trump directly. So, of course, when you have that, the power of a single person as the gatekeeper, meaning Lewandowski, is going to be diminished no matter what. And they seem, however, to be more interested in whining and complaining about the rules and about what's going on and about stealing the election than they are actually going out and executing. And perhaps it's just because they're so far behind. Perhaps they never expected to be where they are. They never expected that they were going to be so successful. So therefore, they didn't know how they're going to have to go in and contest all these places. But they're still not doing it. They're still not putting in the incredible energy and the incredible level of organization that Ted Cruz has. Ted Cruz has a 50-state strategy to get the Republican nomination. It's very clear now that not only did Ted Cruz have, and I am not affiliated with the Cruz campaign whatsoever, let's just say, but it seems very clear that Ted Cruz had this Southern strategy, his SEC primary strategy, where he's going to knock out all those opponents. He didn't. That didn't work for him. It didn't happen. He ran into the the tidal wave of Trump's support, but he still had a plan B. And now it's you want to call it guerrilla warfare. You want to call it just a you know a, a ability as a campaign to continue to adjust, but he has been fighting Donald Trump at every opportunity in for every single inch of ground, every single delegate, and giving nothing and ceding nothing. And it's quite impressive to do it. Now, the, the lay of the land and the geography of the race do not lend themselves well to a Ted Cruz winning many states over the next month or so. The Northeast states like Pennsylvania and New Jersey and Rhode Island, Connecticut, these Maryland, these would seem to be tailor-made for Trump. But Cruz is going to contest them just like he's contesting New York. Now, where does Kasich fall in? He's in second place in many of these places. He, he would relegate Cruz to third place. Perhaps Kasich could continue to do that. And look, he gets in the media. He continued because there are only three people in the race. Kasich could continue to run. So we will see how that shapes out. But, you know, now Donald, you know, it's amazing that Donald Trump really personally just complains like you wouldn't believe. It's really hard to believe that the guy would go on national TV and continue to complain over and over that the world isn't fair, right? 
I mean, our kids say that. People say that. The world isn't fair. So what do we say? We say, tough. But he has no problem going out there and talking about how the world isn't fair. A little bit odd. A little bit odd from my perspective. But I will say the other thing that uh, just, you know, is that clearly Ted Cruz benefited from many of the Rubio backers. There was some question as to where the Rubio people were going to go. Kasich thought he was going to get them. It seems that Ted Cruz got a lot of Rubio backers in many different cases. But let's spend some time on the New York primary on the Democratic side, because the Democratic side is actually shaping to, up to be a lot more interesting. And, you know, as I said, the Bernie Hillary show, Hillary can't afford to lose. I don't think she's going to lose. If Bernie would somehow pull it off, it would be very, very close. But the Jews really do factor very highly into it, in, and the Orthodox community factors very highly. The pro-Israel community is, should be should be a key component of Hillary Clinton's victory in New York. And she got a tremendous gift. I think a gift-wrapped with a little bow-on-top gift from Bernie Sanders this week when Bernie Sanders decided that he was going to hire a Jewish outreach director named Simone Zimmerman. And Simone Zimmerman has posted things on Facebook Basically, well, I'll give you one. Bibi Netanyahu is an arrogant, deceptive, cynical, manipulative a-hole. He is the embodiment of the ugliest national hubris and tone deafness towards the international community. F-U-B-B. And it goes on and on and on and on. It's This is somebody who supports BDS. She supports boycotting Israel. This is somebody who said that colleges should not investigate anti-Semitic behavior. She's to the left of J Street. She stood outside the Conference of Presidents and protested over and over about Israel. This is a person who, well, you know, I don't know her inner feelings, but clearly would be well outside the mainstream. Now, people would say, okay, well, you know, when you have... When you have, uh, when you want to talk about Bernie, he's still pro-Israel, and he says Israel has a right to exist, and it's, of course, he accepts that, and they should leave in peace and security, and of course, Israel, Israel, Israel. But really, I mean, let's think about it. Simone Zimmerman, how exactly, how exactly do you get to... The idea that this person would be suitable for Jewish outreach, and if you are gonna appoint her, you do it in the midst of a New York primary. I would assume. Let me just say that the people who are BDS people, the people who are J Streeters and left to the and to the left, who are out there protesting Israel, who are affiliated with JVP, the Jewish Voices for Peace, or SJP, the Students for Justice in Palestine. Those are out there on the college campuses trying to delegitimize Israel and calling for the boycott, the academic boycott, the economic boycott, etc. Those people are already in your camp if they're going to vote for you at all. If they're not, if they're you know, if they are registered Democrats registered to vote, they are already in your camp. Why are you appointing somebody who's going to be so polarizing to the rest of the Jewish community so as to to totally turn off your message and your message is going to be all about how anti-Israel you are? It just, it seems to be a very flawed 
strategy. Now, maybe Bernie is, well, what you see is what you get. This is me. I'm from Vermont, the different kind of Jew. I say I'm Polish, not necessarily Jewish. Well, what can I say? I can't really understand politically. Forget about, look, I don't care about what you, you know, how you really feel, but I can't understand politically how that works. And I think that, you know, this is the same type of mistake as going to the Daily News and sacking about maybe 10, that 10,000 Palestinians died, were killed in the Gaza War. 10,000 innocents. That was the biggest word for me. Innocent. It means he assumed they were all civilians. Even, it's unclear though, the, the numbers that died. Now, one is too many, of course. I think we all, we all know that. We all agree with that. But the 10,000 numbers was an outrageous number, outrageous from the beginning. You know, kind of tried to walk that back, but really insufficiently. And then you go ahead and you double down on that by hiring this woman, Simone Zimmerman. Remember that name. She is going to be your, if you're a Democrat, she's going to be your outreach director. She's going to be the one trying to court you to feel the burn. And it's a huge gift for Hillary as far as I'm concerned. She should be able to capitalize on that. Yesterday she was in Borough Park uh, huddling with some Jewish leaders together with David Greenfield trying to get out the vote. And, you know, let's just talk about that for a second. Twelve Jewish New York City Council members endorsed Hillary Clinton on, uh, uh, on Tuesday, uh, this past Tuesday. And... So that's 12 out of 14. David Greenfield, Steve Levin, Levin, Alan Mizell, Mark Traeger, Barry Gradenchik, Daniel Garodnik, Karen Kozlowitz, Rory Lansman, Ben Callis, Helen Rosenthal, Mark Levine, and Andrew Cohen for the Bronx. Who's missing? Well, two. Brad Lander, a well-known progressive from Park Slope, the Bill de Blasio successor, um, definitely one of the head of the progressives. Unclear as to where, you know, that he's willing to sacrifice some progressive cred to go for Hillary. Uh, you know, he might be more popular. Bernie might be more popular amongst his base and those type of people. But Chaim Deutsch, that is puzzling. In fact, that's shocking. Chaim Deutsch, an Orthodox Jew from Midwood in a very conservative Democratic district. Now, maybe you'd say a lot of Republicans there. He actually had a very you know, strong Republican race. But what what's his message there? That a Democrat should vote for Bernie Sanders over Hillary, or not vote the price? It just doesn't. I don't even understand the idea. Whoever is advising Chaim Deutsch, or if he's advising himself, maybe he's his own best advisor, Allah Trump, not to join the rest of your colleagues in endorsing Hillary when, in fact, you know that Bernie Sanders' campaign... I mean, if you are a friend of Israel, if you consider yourself to be pro-Israel, if you consider yourself to be against the BDS, how is it that you go ahead and leave the question open as to who one should vote for in the New York State Democratic primary, the Democratic side? I don't endorse anybody here on the show. Uh, people are free free to contact me is who they should go. But as I said, 12 people, I'm sorry, 12 city councilmen uh, of the Jewish caucus, 12 out of 14, go ahead and did that. Chaim Deutsch is a, a absolute surprise to me. Uh, you know, I certainly haven't spoken to him about it, but I am very, very, very surprised about the idea that Chaim Deutsch is not supporting, not one of those supporting Hillary Clinton, and they would leave the door open, potentially, 
to support Bernie Sanders. He has been known to be with the progressives. I don't know if he's an official member of the Progressive Caucus. I think he might be. But either way, again, a very puzzling choice politically to go ahead and do that. And in the last minutes that I have here, and this is Spin Class sponsored by the S4 Group, uh, as far as the commentary, I do want to talk about the special election on Long Island for to replace Dean Skelos, the balance of power in New York State. This is a very, very important election if you are living in the 9th Senate District, the five towns, Oceanside, West Hempstead, Long Beach, to mention some of the Jewish areas. You must go out and vote twice, twice on Tuesday, April the 19th. You actually have to do it, the whole process, twice. It shouldn't be that difficult. But let me just say it's been an extraordinarily nasty and negative campaign, and that's most unfortunate, uh, and it's... It's really hard to break through all the clutter of this disguise. I hope that most people get this mail and throw it out. Uh, for some reason, the negative mail works. And that's why people continue to do it. But the one thing that I can't abide by with all this is the use or the accusation that one of the candidates, meaning the non-Jewish candidate in this case, Chris McGrath was accused of being an anti-Semite or accused of supporting anti-Semitism. I don't know exactly what the difference is. If you are, you know, if you support anti-Semitism, presumably it's because you are somewhat anti-Semitic yourself. And for a Jewish candidate to do that is, I think, somewhat despicable. It's upsetting. It's low. It has no place in politics, especially when it's well known that there is no connection whatsoever. McGrath's law firm merely represented somebody who was a union member who was engaged in some very unfortunate behavior. But either way aside, uh, if you don't have evidence or actual evidence for that kind of thing, you don't play the race card. You don't go ahead and accuse somebody of anti-Semitism. And that's really a low point, I think, in New York politics. We seem to you know, reach every low points every so often, so I'm sure we'll get to another one, and that'll be replaced eventually very soon. But uh, shame on the Democrats for besmirching the reputation of somebody like that. That's it for this week. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs here on the Nachum Siegel Network.